everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Stephanie, and this is my co-host, Sandy. Hello. Hi. Uh, so today I will be discussing something that hits close to home for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being that we live in San Diego, which is a border city with a large population of immigrants. And the other reason being that, um, well, I was born and raised in San Diego, but I think I can safely say and confidently say that both of us in one way or another have been impacted by today's topic mm-hmm. right um so what is today's topic um today i will be discussing the recent allegations of forced hysterectomies in the georgia ice detention center as well as just a brief history of ice um because i think it's really important for people to know yeah. how ice came to be and what um kind of like what its role is in today's world um and then i'm going to be covering a case uh, that's called madrigal versus quilligan And it's a case in which 10 women filed a class action lawsuit in federal court claiming that the L.A. County USC Medical Center was systematically sterilizing Spanish-speaking mothers who delivered their babies via C-section in their hospital. So basically, these women were going in to give birth, coming out with a baby, but also being having been sterilized. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them had no idea that they had been sterilized until months later years later oh wow um so i think that that case is a good um it's good to cover because it shows that this history of sterilization in the u.s goes way back it goes back way further than this case from the 70s but it's nothing new yeah exactly it's nothing new and it's interesting to see that um you know a lot of the immigrants that are being held in these detention centers do happen to be mexican mm-hmm. um and this just happens to be mexican american women mm-hmm. in la so there was a nice correlation there um the information for today's story came from a short brutal history of ice by katie mcdonough um on the splinter website the other is from the outcry over ice and hysterectomies explained by nicole Nerea on vox uh, also from Unwanted Sterilization and Eugenics Programs in the United States by Lisa Ko on PBS, When Doctors Took Family Planning into Their Own Hands by Marcela Valdez, and then the documentary um, No Mas Bebes. It was directed by Renee uh, Tajima Peña, and she actually spoke to the 10 women who were part of the class action lawsuit. So wow. it's really interesting because for many, many years, this case wasn't it's not like it was a huge case and mm-hmm. um it, it, it's not like something that went down in history books so yeah there wasn't that much information and she thought it was important to be able to get the viewpoints of the women who were affected by all of this mm-hmm. so yeah i mean it's a heavy hitter i feel um especially for like you and i because we do come from immigrant parents yes um i I was telling Sandy earlier, like I spoke to my mom just to see what her experiences were like coming, coming into the U S and luckily for her, um, and for us, I think, um, she didn't have very many issues, Mm -hmm. um, or scares. She was illegal for, I think about 13 years, but she did get her citizenship, you know, years later when she was able to, but not everyone has the luck. Yeah, I think um, my mom and my dad had, I will say, and I can't talk about it a lot because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but I have an aunt who was the first one to come 
to the U.S., like in our immediate family, yeah. she and her husband, they came, they, they had like applied or whatever, and they were able to get their paperwork mm-hmm. to come. Um, they, she started working at a business. Um, she started working at a business that, uh, I'm not sure how long after she started working there, but after, um, that business was going to close mm-hmm. and she decided she was going to buy it out. And oh, wow. that business is now still very much thriving. It's expanded. My cousin oh. has taken, yeah, has taken over, I know over it, it and, and grown it. it. And it's like an incredible story, but my aunt was such and is such a matriarch in our family. Mm-hmm. She is just like super, super strong. And like I said, I can't go into too much detail. But what I will say is that once she was here, she helped a lot, a lot of people, um, not just people within my own family, mm-hmm. um, but other people that she knew needed help. Um, and so I would like to think that because of her, a lot of people might still be alive today because otherwise I don't know how else they might have been able yeah. to get get here yeah. if it weren't for her. Um, so it's it's a really cool like part of the family history. Um, and it's great to see that, like, like I said, like that she worked so, so hard and continues to work hard to this day. She wakes up at, like two o'clock in the morning to like, Aww. yeah, to like work her, her business yeah. and um and because of her i mean so many of us have been able to move on and do incredible things so i probably don't tell her enough but if it weren't for her i don't know where our family would be so that's pretty cool and i'm sure sandy has you know plenty of stories as far as what it's like being a child of a an child immigrant. of an immigrant yeah um yeah i saw a lot growing up with my mom i don't think she ever came here illegally i i want to say she came on a student visa because mm-hmm. her original plan was to come here for college learn english and all that um but it from what i remember she wasn't allowed to work on it it was just mm-hmm. like to go to school um but she did need to provide for herself she did need to work um we didn't come from a wealthy family um so i know stories of her working in factories and them pretty much knowing mm-hmm. she wasn't supposed to be working. Um, but I, I mean, again, this was over 30 years ago. Um, they kind of would either forge something mm-hmm. or, or lead her in the direction of how to go about doing that. Um, but the funny thing is that she would tell me is that they always had a door mm-hmm. for the immigrants to run through just in case. There someone... was like a raid or something. Exactly. Yeah. So... It was definitely a tough life. Um, the things that she had to go through in order to be able to, you know, be here and and live the American dream. But seeing her start from that into where she is now, um, she's a nurse. She mm-hmm. has a beautiful home. She's doing so well, and none of it was given to her. Right, it was all work. A lot of hard work. Oh yeah, very much. And things aren't today what they were back then, right? Yeah, like my it's true. mom was telling me. So my Dad, I think she said, came here in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, his, I, He was here with my grandma and some of my other uncles, I think, were already here as well as, as, well as my aunt. Um, and so they started dating in the early 80s. My, my parents did. And then in 85, I think, is when they decided to get married. And mm-hmm. there's a whole other drama about that because my grandparents on my mom's side didn't want my mom to marry 
my dad. <laughs> um, but my mom was like, I love him. I'm going to marry him. And so she ended up like running away. I always give her a hard time <laughs> about running away. But she left my grandparents' home and just came mm -hmm. to be with my dad. But back then, it wasn't this like huge thing. Like she literally just crossed in a car I mean, she lied about being a U.S. <laughs> citizen, but like it wasn't like today. You know, she yeah. says that when they were dating, my dad would have to because my dad was already um, a resident or was like in the process of it. He wasn't allowed to be crossing back and forth. Mm -hmm. But my mom was in TJ, so he wanted to see her. Yeah. And so he would cross. And then to cross back, my mom said he would go through the mountains he would um, go through Playas de Tijuana. Mm -hmm. So before you used to be able to just kind of like walk walk back right. and end up in IB, which is where most of my family is. So she said that there was a fence, but that it wasn't anything like it is today. Yeah. So she's like, yeah, he would go through the mountains or he would go through the beach <laughs> or sometimes he would like hide in the cars. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, <laughs> this is crazy, you know, but she said like it just nothing looked like it does now. Today. So yeah. It's pretty interesting. So I'm excited to get into this um, just because I do think it's important for all of us to have um, like a better understanding, I think, of of the agency that's out there right now, mm -hmm. kind of causing all this turmoil for so many people. So for those of you who don't know, ICE stands for Immigrations and Customs Enforcements. And the existence of ICE itself is a fairly recent development that can easily be forgotten when you think of how much harm and irreparable damage the agency has inflicted and how large it seems to currently loom in the political landscape. When you take a look at how much has occurred since its creation, you could hardly believe that ICE was created in 2003, a mere 17 years ago. ICE was a product of an opportunistic and frantic political reorganization that happened in the wake of the attacks of September 11th. Within a year, a bipartisan majority in Congress had voted to establish the Department of Homeland Security, a department which absorbed 22 other federal agencies and 170,000 federal employees under the banner of national security. George Bush said at the time that the continuing threat of terrorism, the threat of mass murder on our own soil, will be met with a unified effective response. Immigration was suddenly and unfortunately now part of that unified response. So immigration was not under this umbrella before. Mm -hmm. It was under, I believe it was justice. Um, okay. And so now suddenly with the absorption of all of these different agencies, immigration is now seen as part of national security, okay. which s automatically kind of alters the way people think of immigration as mm -hmm. now a part of uh, the problem that we have with national security, yeah. which it, it's really not because let's not forget that most <laughs> terrorists and terrorist acts that have happened are on American grown. soil are homegrown. Mm -hmm. So. It's very misleading. Erica Lee, a history professor at the University of Minnesota and director of the school's um, Immigration History Research Center, says, at the time, those of us who study immigration pointed out how dramatic a change this was to place immigration, which had been under the Department of Justice, into this new agency called Homeland Security. It sends the message that immigration was a threat, that all immigration was a threat. So, wow. again, yeah. We're founded on immigration, but now all of a sudden we're also a threat. Yeah. It's crap. Tom Ridge, the first director of DHS, had overseen the rollout of a strategic plan for these newly established enforcement agencies. 
One goal among others, a 100% removal rate of removable aliens and the infrastructure to make it happen. He claimed that without the 100% removal of these removable aliens, other DHS programs could not truly contribute to national security. No. Like, this is a lot already. Yeah. (laughs) While its vision for a 100% rate of removal within a decade failed, it more than succeeded on other fronts. By 2013, only 10 years after its founding, the United States was spending more money on immigration enforcement than all other federal criminal law enforcement agencies combined. Criminal law enforcement agencies, not just agencies, but criminal law enforcement agencies, which are those agencies that are supposed to keep criminals off the streets. All of a sudden, their money, the money is being spent on immigration enforcement. So it was more important to get out illegal alien or... No, that's not the term. I wanted to go into this and I don't think I touch on it very. I don't think I touch on it because there is just so much to go into it. But there are definitely people and this has been going on for a really long time because I remember going into it in one of my classes when I was in college. But terms like alien and illegal, um, they're dehumanizing, disorienting, isolating, you know, like they uh, suddenly this person is just an illegal and not just an illegal person, but an illegal alien. Like we're not alien, we're humans, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're not illegal. So I think some people- Undocumented. Well, they're moving actually- um, Past that? Not not past that, but I think the term I saw was um, foreign- like a undocumented foreign citizen or something like that. Like something where it's like more true to what you actually are. You're a foreign person in this country that just Mm -hmm. happens to be undocumented. You're not illegal or like, you know, you're not an illegal illegal. alien. Yeah, exactly. Like, so there's definitely a lot of people who are fighting to get that kind of the terminology terminology updated. But more importantly, they're deemed more criminal Mm -hmm. than citizens who are committing actual Crimes. Crimes. Yes. Or I wouldn't say actual crimes, but other types of crimes, because I guess technically being undocumented is a type of crime in their eyes. Okay. So another thing I was reading was that um, being undocumented is not actually a crime. Really? Right. So being undocumented is, um, shoot, I want to get this right but basically like if a cop pulls you over mm-hmm. for being undocumented they can't take you back they can't like arrest you for being undocumented because it's not a crime okay they um they all they can do is they can give you your fine your ticket or whatever mm-hmm. and like they they're supposed to let you go only ice can technically arrest you for being undocumented okay but it's because it's not an actual crime police aren't supposed to be arresting you for it. Mm -hmm. But what I read was happening or could happen is that they can arrest you for something else or whatever. And then, um, keep you there. They'll notify Mm -hmm. once your name is in a certain system, Mm -hmm. they'll notify ice and then they can keep you until ice comes Comes to get you to get you, which they shouldn't do, but some people do. Okay. Partnerships both formal and ad hoc with local police have given ICE an unprecedented presence in communities across the country. It also has and makes steady use of its sweeping powers to surveil. One of those surveillance strategies are stingrays, also known as cell site simulators, which track and locate cell phones by mimicking a real cell tower and forcing phones in the area to communicate with the device. In the process, they ensnare not only a suspect cell phone, but bystanders' phone as well, raising mm. serious privacy concerns. Mm-hmm. So isn't that, that sounds nuts? sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. And 
they actually like use this. I read um, briefly, so I, I can't give you very many details, but they used it. They were looking for someone who was undocumented. I don't I'm pretty sure they didn't have like a criminal record or anything. They mm-hmm. were just like trying to track this person down and they had an idea of like where he might be. So they were using this to try and track this guy down. But again, like he had no criminal record. They were just wow. trying to get him so that they could deport him. So that's it's just crazy the means to which they are willing we'll go to, to go, even though that means that you are. I mean, like you're seriously infringing on my privacy at that right. point as well. And I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And then we see these other investigators not putting any work into actual criminal cases. <laughs> yeah. Rape. So it's, yeah, it's they pretty never crazy. get investigated, but then they're putting all this effort into something like this. Mm hmm. So with the creation of DHS and ICE, Congress established a monster that could be used by someone like Trump to precisely these ends. Um, and this is something that Bill Ong. Hing, a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, has said, in fact, Hing testified against folding immigration into DHS back in 2002 and has watched the progress of this over the years since his testimony as his warnings about overstep about the conflation of immigrants and terrorists have come to life. The resulting changes were immediate. According to data from the Detention Watch Network, the average daily population of detained immigrants increased from approximately 5,000 in 1994 to 19,000 in 2001 and to over 39,000 in 2017. Sadly, while the Trump administration has been vocal about unleashing the full power of the machinery that can detain people at that rate, the machinery itself is not a product of the Trump era. Mm-mm. Although Trump's third executive order was for improvements to border security and immigration enforcement, the order itself was but a continuation of a philosophy and priority of previous administrations, both Democratic and Republican, since the 1990s. What his executive order has in reality looked like in recent months is a targeting detention and sometimes removal of parents, sick children, domestic violence victims, and younger immigrants with temporary protection through the Deferred Action for Childhood um, Arrivals Program, a.k.a. DACA. It has also looked like a blatant disregard to due process and congressional inquiries. It has looked like lawlessness and impunity, and in fact, his entire presidency has felt this way, culminating in what is undoubtedly one of the most important elections of our country and our democracy. Mm-hmm. And even though it might just now be coming to the attention of certain people, cough, cough, white privilege, immigrant populations have been very much aware of the power the state has to monitor their movements and their freedoms in this country. And this goes way back, for example, in 1790, Congress established a path to citizenship for any alien being a free white person. So only if you're white can Mm -hmm. you have citizenship. Later on in 1875, Congress enacted a law barring the importation of Chinese women for the purposes of prostitution. And this paved the way for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which suspended Chinese immigration for 10 years and declared Chinese immigrants ineligible for naturalization. Since its founding, this country has moved through a series of restrictionist and comparatively more open policies that have nevertheless maintained the same through line of white supremacy in various iterations of racial panic. So a lot of these laws that have come about have come in a time of some sort of panic, Mm -hmm. right? Um, What changed with the creation of DHS 
was the articulation, the speed, and the scale at which the United States could act on its basest instincts rather than root them out of our institutions. So it's just making it a lot easier for them to basically weed us out. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. High-profile raids, the abrupt detention of immigrants who are well-established in their communities, and ominous rhetoric about fear are all a piece with a long history of racist and xenophobic laws governing who can enter this country and under what conditions they might stay. But ICE is also, in significant ways, something new entirely. So before I wasn't a child advocate for foster kids, I worked at a refugee agency. Um, and it wasn't just refugees. It was um, also asylum seekers and immigrants. Um, so it was just kind of like this all-encompassing thing. And I was working there actually once Trump did get into office um, in 2016. And he did the travel ban and, you know, mm -hmm. his executive orders. Um, and I have to mention that once that happened, whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant at this point, but what happened at the borders in that moment was absolute chaos. Um, we were meeting with the border patrol, um, agents and the port director, we were meeting with them constantly. Um, it was our agency that was meeting them. And I was the one that was sent for those meetings. There was each person from different organizations as a representative. Um, we had the ACLU there mm -hmm. of San Diego. Um, and then we had many immigration lawyers coming, um, as a representative for their firms. And so it was like a, a group of us meeting with the port director and we were voicing like our concerns or like asking, you know, how are things going? What are the plans being in place? And every single time he's like, I'm sorry, there's basically no plan. So that's, and, it, and I think that was across the board because it was, it was chaotic everywhere. It was chaotic at airports where mm -hmm. like the airports didn't really know what was going on. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Right. Like people were traveling in and out. Like I, I think I read and I don't, I, I don't think it's this exact kind of story but if you remember the terminal with tom hanks mm -hmm. where the the man which is a true story but the man ended up being at the airport Stuck. for like 18 years or something like that because he couldn't be here and he mm -hmm. couldn't be back home like stories like that were coming out where people had no idea and not just like the people who were themselves traveling but airport the airport staff yeah, had no idea what to do it was confusion everywhere um and the port director of san diego border basically told us you know this order was made, but no plan was given to us. So we're just, we're learning day by day. Things are changing day by day. And, but you have to think every single day that people's lives are being affected. And on hold. And on hold, exactly. Um, and it wasn't just the San Diego border. He was meeting with all of the port directors mm -hmm. across the U.S. You know, he was in Arizona, Texas. They were all meeting and every single one of them were like, we have no idea what's happening. People are getting turned away when they shouldn't be. Um, I'm sure people were let in when they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But either way, like there was just no organization. It, it was like mass chaos. It was mass chaos. And it wasn't just mass chaos for like a few days. This lasted months, mm -hmm. if not like a year. I think the first year from 2016 until 2017, it was like that. It was constantly like that. They were constantly trying to figure out ways to like, you know, fix this. And they couldn't. They Every single month we were like, you know, this and this happened that we have video footage of, you know, someone being turned away when they shouldn't have been. And they're like, we don't know because we can't 
they can't even like go back to be like oh no like see like this is what the law was because it was constantly changing all the border patrol agents themselves had no idea what was going on and some of them was doing different things yeah some of them would get a memo but others wouldn't get a memo so some of them like knew some rule but others didn't and so it just like depended on which border patrol agent you came in contact with at that time would depend what would happen with your life the next steps and so um I think it's just been this ongoing and I think the stories that you're talking about right now just kind of proves it's been an ongoing issue that hasn't been resolved. Yeah. And I and like I said, I feel like it's kind of just what this entire presidency has felt like where you you don't know, like you can wake up then tomorrow and there's like a, a brand new headline of something like absolutely crazy that's happened because of, of Trump, like. I don't know. I feel like it's been very unstable and I don't I don't ever remember feeling this way growing up about anyone, whether they're Republican or Democrat. Like this has been so just crazy. This was the warning Hing issued to Congress in 2002 when it first considered the question of folding immigration into a department built to address terrorism. This question of how to efficiently, effectively, and fairly regulate immigration is one that we must answer with an eye not only on our immediate fears, but to how the answer shapes us as a nation over the long term. And so, like, literally what he is saying is coming true, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yes, of course, in 2002, everyone was on alert. Everyone was really scared because something like, you know, September 11th had never happened. Right. But I think, like, there were people who were raising flags like, hey, like, don't let your fears, your current fears impact the world that we're shaping. And and like now we're kind of living what's what's happened mm-hmm. um, in the face of that. The answer to that might be reflected in the recent allegations ICE is facing, which claim that women detained at one of the agency's facilities in Osceola, Georgia, underwent unnecessary gynecological procedures, including forced hysterectomies. The allegations began with a nurse, Dawn Wooten, who filed a whistleblower complaint that cited concerns about a seemingly high number of hysterectomies performed on immigrants detained at the facility. Multiple women have since come forward with firsthand accounts of their procedures. One former detainee, Pauline Binham, allegedly had her fallopian tube removed without her consent. Another three women came forward who claimed to have also been subjected to surgeries and other procedures that allegedly never sought or didn't fully understand. Representative Pramila Jayapal, the vice chair of the House Immigration Subcommittee, said in a statement that she had been briefed by three attorneys representing detainees at the facility. At minimum, she said, 17 or 18 people held at the Irwin County Detention Center had been subjected to unnecessary gynecological procedures, often with the clear intention of sterilization and without obtaining proper consent. Many of the details of the allegations against the Georgia facility are still emerging, and both ICE and the private operator of the facility have called for skepticism of the complaint, of course. Like, mm-hmm. they're going to deny, deny, deny. Yeah. Which relies on secondhand accounts of the hysterectomies that were allegedly performed. It still isn't clear to what extent ICE and the medical staff involved sought the detainee's consent to perform these procedures or whether they were medically necessary. The accusations, unfortunately, echo an ugly history of coercive sterilization in the United States and have sparked widespread outrage, including calls for formal investigations, which I feel like that's the least you can do. Like if something like this comes out, the least that should happen is that there is a formal investigation. It shouldn't take 
like hundreds of people to be like, hey, we're demanding this investigation to happen. Like that's something that you should be taking on your own just to clear your own name. Yeah. And I also wanted to point out that the initial complaint filed by Don with the Coalition of Immigrant Rights Groups led by nonprofit activist group Project South was focused on the alleged lack of medical care and unsafe work practices that facilitated the spread of COVID-19. Oh. So like the the initial complaint was about the the conditions mm-hmm. and in the spread of corona, not necessarily about the forced sterilization that was kind of like in there, but yeah. the main thing was about the hysterectomies and so because she filed this this it has now all come out. Uh-huh. The International Rescue Committee raised the alarm on the public health risk posed by ongoing ICE detention of tens of thousands of people in the United States being held in unsanitary conditions amidst suspect and potentially super spreading levels of COVID infection in ICE detention centers. ICE currently reports about 5,800 cases of COVID in its Mm. detention centers across the country since the start of the outbreak, with approximately 1,000 positive cases currently in custody with six deaths. That's a lot. Six too many. (laughs) So detention centers in general aren't equipped to house anybody. (laughs) Um, I think originally they were made to have like a couple people in there for like a brief amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once things started changing and once I started, you know, doing more things, um, it became overpopulated, but nothing was ever done to the detention centers to actually make it... um, like sustainable, sustainable to, have, to have all those people. And I remember one time when I was working um, with the refugee agency, we had an asylum seeker come through the borders. She was from Haiti, uh, but then became a refugee to Brazil. Mm. Um, but she had an, a sister that lived in Florida. Mm. So her like, she had journey. no family, <laughs> but her journey was to get to her sister and her sister was like, I'll help you. She was pregnant. Hmm. So during her pregnancy from Brazil up until the U.S. border, she like walked. She took horse rides. um, She uh, hitchhiked a few times as well. She learned Spanish on the way up, which was cool. Um, But anyways, so by the time she got to the U.S. border, she was nine months pregnant. But she also didn't know exactly when she got pregnant and she Mm -hmm. hadn't been seeing a doctor. So she's like guessing she's nine months pregnant. But she looked like she was about to go into labor any day Mm -hmm. now. So when she got to the border, they're like, we can't let you in right now because this again, it was 2016. Everything had just happened. Um, So like we can't let you in, even though you're seeking asylum Mm -hmm. in in normal circumstances, we would have let her in under that condition and then gone through her case afterwards. Um, But they're like, we have to detain you. So they detained her and then realized they had no means to help her if she went into labor. So then they called us and was like, hey, we're just going to release her because we can't house her because we don't want to take responsibility in case she goes into labor. We don't have anyone here to like help her and we don't want to be responsible. We don't want to be held accountable for anything that happens, but she had nowhere to go. So they said, we're just going to like open the door for her. Yeah. Oh my God. So I went to go pick her up because she was just going to be left in the street because they didn't want to be held accountable. So I went to go pick her up. I found um, a really nice woman that was willing to like house her until she was able to give birth. But once I, once we got there, she's like, um, I think her water has been leaking. 
And so then I, oh I'm trying to God. translate because this woman doesn't speak Spanish, but the refu or the asylum seeker was from Haiti and spoke a little bit of Spanish from what she learned. So I was trying to speak to her in Spanish and she said, yeah, I think I've been leaking water for a few days now. I was like, oh my God, that's like my worst nightmare mm-hmm. because for any of you that has had a baby, once your water breaks, like you have to have the baby within a certain amount of time oh so that there's no infection, you know. So then I took her to the hospital immediately and they're like, yeah, she needs to have the baby now. And I'm just like, you know, for one, had a, had we have not have been like, okay, let's go pick her mm-hmm. up. Let's house her. Let's take her to the doctor. She would have just been on the street waiting. Can you even imagine? Uh-huh. Or if she had just stayed at the detention center, what would they have done? How do you have, have a heart? Like, how could you as a person, regardless of what your work is, mm-hmm. just be like, hey, you know what? I just don't want the responsibility of this pregnant woman because we have no tools to help her i'm just gonna put her out in the street because the street can help her like you at the very least can drive her to a hospital like just drive her to the hospital at the very least but the fact that they were just gonna put her out on the street and be like yeah figure it out yeah and so it was it was very clear at that time to me that they just didn't have the means to really hold anybody there Mm -hmm. you know unless it's someone for like a day or two um until they're able to get to whatever their next step is after that um but to house so many people for that long because they're holding people for a really long Mm -hmm. time there it's not equipped for that unbelievable olga burn iric's director of immigration says locking up individuals seeking safety during the most infectious pandemic in 100 years is beyond inhumane public health experts universally agree that social distancing is one of the most important measures we can all take to combat the spread of covid19 something that is impossible in ice detention facilities and let us not forget that immigrants were, might still be being doused in toxic industrial disinfectant at detention centers in an attempt to control the spread of the virus. Um, detainees are being sprayed with HDQ neutral, a potent and potentially toxic disinfectant, which can cause severe skin burns and serious eye damage. Uh, detainees have stated that they are being sprayed every 20 to 30 minutes in close proximity and at times directly at them. Mm. So rather than just figuring out a way to keep people apart or having mass testing or, I mean, I don't know, like providing masks, whatever it is, their solution to this is let's just spray them down with this potentially toxic chemical and this should work. But there's, I, as far as I know, there's nothing that says that spraying them with this chemical is mm-hmm. going to stop the spread of the disease. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's insane. So is it really a surprise that we now have allegations of forced sterilizations in these same detention centers? The procedures were allegedly performed by Mahendra Amen, a gynecologist associated with Coffee Regional Medical Center in Irwin County Hospital in Georgia. In 2015, Amon and several other doctors reached a more than $500,000 civil settlement with Georgia prosecutors to resolve allegations that they submitted fraudulent claims to Medicaid and Medicare. But the detention facility, which is operated by the private prison contractor LaSalle Corrections, continued to send him their patients. According to Wooten's complaint, the detainees, many of whom have limited English skills, were allegedly sent to a gynecologist outside the facility who performed the hysterectomies, often without them fully understanding why they were there getting the procedure done. One woman was told it was because she had a thick womb or heavy bleeding, even though she had never experienced heavy bleeding or been previously told by a doctor that she had a thick womb. Like, what is a thick womb? (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure it's a thing, but like, that's so (laughs) random. 
Several other attorneys representing detainees who had been treated by Amon have come forward with similar allegations. One attorney, Benjamin Osorio, told NBC News that Amon performed hysterectomies on two of his clients that they think may have been medically unnecessary. Detainees were also subject to other invasive gynecological procedures, including one woman who allegedly had her fallopian tube removed without her consent, which will likely make it harder for her to conceive in the future. One detained immigrant who was not named in the complaint told Project South that when she asked what treatment she was receiving before she was subjected to a hysterectomy, she was given different answers by three different people, a doctor, a corrections officer transporting her to the hospital, and a nurse at the detention center. In an interview with Intercept, which first reported the complaint, Amon said he had performed medical procedures on detainees with the consent of the detention center, but had only performed one or two hysterectomies in the last two to three years. Uh, Representative Benny Thompson, chair of the House Committee on Homeland Security, announced that the committee would examine the allegations in the complaint as part of an investigation concerning conditions at ICE detention facilities run by private contractors. The allegations put forth in this whistleblower complaint point to an alarming pattern of unsafe conditions and a lack of oversight at privately run ICE facilities. The complaint alleging hysterectomies have been performed on women held in detention without consent is incredibly disturbing. And 173 members of Congress have urged the DHS um, Homeland Security's Office of the Inspector General to open a separate investigations into the allegations and I read in an article that they wanted like a response by September 25th, which were passed, but mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything as to what came of that. Okay. So they put out this, you know, request to open the investigation and I just, I couldn't find anything stating whether or not like they accepted it or not. Mm-hmm. He says the reports of mass hysterectomies cause grave concern for the violation of the bodily autonomy and reproductive rights detained people. They wrote. Everyone, regardless of their immigration status, their language, or their incarceration status, deserve to control their own reproductive choices and make informed choices about their bodies. To no one's surprise, ICE spokesperson Lindsay Williams said in a statement that, in general, anonymous, unproven allegations made without any fact-checkable specifics should be treated with the appropriate skepticism they deserve. Yeah, I'm sure that's what you're going to say, ICE. (laughs) And this isn't the first time that Project South has raised concerns about human rights abuse at Irwin. A report released by the organization in 2017 found that the center wasn't feeding detainees enough and serving them spoiled food, as well as paying them less than a dollar a day to do voluntary work that helped them pay for more food and phone access, which was prohibitively expensive. Detention Watch Network has similarly raised concerns about the health and safety of detainees at Irwin. And while the complaint that was filed by Wooten um, raises concern about a single detention center, it does reflect a broader pattern of abuses that occur in immigration detention, particularly in facilities operated by private prison contractors. The federal government received more than 1,200 sexual abuse complaints from adult detainees between 2010 and 2017, and more than 4,500 such complaints from accompanied children between 2014 and 2018 which again should come to no surprise given the conditions of the detention centers and the authority and power given to this the agency. Yeah. While this allegation is appalling and disconcerting, coerced sterilization is in fact a shameful part of America's history and one that doesn't have to go too far back to find examples of. 
used as a means of controlling undesirable populations, immigrants, people of color, poor people, unmarried mothers, the disabled, the mentally ill, federally funded sterilization programs took place in 32 states throughout the 20th century. Driven by prejudiced notions of science and social control, these programs informed policies on immigration and segregation. One such case is that of the Madrigal 10, which took place in East LA in the 60s and early 70s, in which women were going to the county hospital to give birth and were being sent home sterilized. So here's a story of Madrigal versus Quilligan. That's crazy stuff. It's pretty crazy. It's crazy to think that there were these like sterilization um, programs that were not only like just active, but they were actually informing policies on immigration and segregation. And we're still seeing that today. So it's not just like, mm-hmm. oh, here's this like random program that's like going around. It's like, no, it's they're federally funded. The government is in on it. Like, and we're all being affected by them today. Well, Hitler yes. brought up uh-huh. eugenics. And Which he, is huge. Yeah. And he actually, I mean, not only did he accomplish it in Germany, um, but he came to the U.S. actually mm-hmm. with those ideas. Yep. And he convinced many people and people. doctors that this was something that we needed to do. Just like he said, the sterilization of disabled people, mm-hmm. people of color, anyone that he felt was not a superior race in his ideal he believed needed to be sterilized. And it's amazing to see that people in this country during that time bought into that. Yeah. I mean, eugenics can be its own episode. Yeah. Because there's so many ways that it has affected like us here in this country. And again, like this was in the sixties and seventies. It wasn't like it was that, that long ago. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't exactly eugenics and we'll get into exactly like the specifics of it. But the way that it all kind of played out, it definitely looks like there were prejudices Mm -hmm. that led to the actions of these doctors. So let's get started. Um, Dolores Madrigal remembered being told that her sterilization could be reversed. Uh, Jovita Rivera and Regina Hernandez said that they were bullied by doctors and nurses who declared their children burdens on California taxpayers. Melvina Hernandez did not find out that her tubes had been cut until four years after her son was born. Oh, my gosh. In 1975, these women were among the 10 plaintiffs who filed a class action lawsuit in federal court claiming that the Los Angeles County USC Medical Center was systematically sterilizing Spanish-speaking mothers who delivered their their babies via cesarean, so C-section. The accusations consisted of forced sterilization over multiple decades and manipulation by the doctors in order to get consent from the patients. This case brought race into the equation because doctors were said to be taking advantage of language barriers and also expressed prejudice against many immigrant women. Many of the women were not told what they were signing or were misled by doctors into thinking that the procedure would benefit their death. And so I watched the documentary, like I said, No Mas Bebes, which tells the story of all of this through the 10 women's point of view. And one of the women was told that she needed to have a C-section or she and her baby would die. But she was told she had to sign like a form before going into the surgery. Mm-hmm. And she was smart enough to be like, well, I don't understand this form, so I'm not going to sign it. 
And their response was, well, if you don't sign it, we're not going to do the surgery. So both you and your baby will will die. Oh my so gosh. basically she was kind of forced into it. And so she signed it and ended up having been sterilized during the birth. So a lot of them said that they were brought these forms in the middle of them like giving birth. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you're like, yeah, out of it and in pain and the last thing you want to worry about is like what reading is on this paper document. especially when you're reading it in a language you don't even understand so yeah it was it was pretty sad the lawsuit was championed by antonia hernandez a latina fresh out of school, law school and backed by the marginalized feminist wing of a growing chicano activist movement the events in the trial had a famous famous setting for decades the Los Angeles County Hospital served as an exterior shot for the soap opera General Hospital. And the claims were disturbing, that the hospital had made a practice of misleading women about sterilization and coercing them into giving consent. When Virginia Espino, a historian, began researching the case in 1994, almost all of the details of the case had been lost and forgotten. For years, Espino could not even obtain complete copies of the court documents at the County Hall of Records. They said that it was lost, missing, or that somebody somebody had borrowed it and that they couldn't find it. It wasn't until Espino teamed up with Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Renee Tajima Peña to direct the documentary No Mas Bebes that the public was able to hear the plaintiffs describe their own experiences with the ill-fated suit. Is this documentary in English or Spanish? Um, Like Spanglish? Like it's, <laughs> it's like in English, but a lot of the women still don't speak like fluent english mm-hmm. so their like portion of the interviews are in are in spanish the documentary in english would be is called no more babies okay um madrigal versus quilligan revolved around two fundamental questions did obstetricians at county hospital perform tubal ligations on their patients without proper consent and did the doctor single out latinas for these procedures when the suit came to trial in 1978 Judge Jesse W. Curtis ruled that neither of these charges was true. Mm -hmm. The case is essentially the result of a breakdown in communications between the patients and the doctors, he claimed. He claimed that the misunderstandings occurred because the women were primarily Spanish speakers. Some of them, including Dolores Madrigal and Consuelo Hermosillo, had even signed consent forms for their procedures. Their emotional distress at being sterilized, Curtis wrote, was caused by their cultural background as immigrants from rural Mexico who believe that a woman's worth is tied to her ability to raise a large family, not by their sterilizations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Dr. E.J. Quilligan, the head of the county's, uh, county hospital's obstetrics unit and a pioneer in life-saving fetal monitoring technology, told a reporter... We were practicing good medicine. So the like kind of the crazy thing is so the obviously the case is called Madrigal versus Quilligan. Quilligan being the head of the obstetrics unit. Um, he ended up being kind of like removed from the case altogether mm-hmm. because they said that um, he wasn't at all of these like surgeries. And so he should have no responsibility for it because mm-hmm. he wasn't there. But they were saying, you know, he's the head of the unit. So, like, yeah. this kind of has to be coming from somewhere. It's not like these people just decided on their own, like, oh, I'm going to start doing this out of nowhere. But there were doctors. They interviewed some of the doctors who were, like, accused of doing yeah. this. 
And um, they all said, you know, it like this wasn't something that we were doing because we were being told to do it. Like we got consent from these women. Like it is what it is. But the moms in the documentary would say that like they would overhear them talking about like how oh, she already has five kids like she doesn't need any more or like no like it's going crazy out there there's too many mexicans like we oh need to gosh. like take care of this so like they're on their side they're like this was clearly racially motivated yeah. on their side they're like we were just doing good medicine like we like this wasn't this wasn't anything crazy like we were just doing what we needed to do and they said it was fine they signed off on it mm-hmm. so everything is good and we'll get into it a little bit more but obviously like what consent is today and what consent was then yeah has changed a little mm-hmm. bit at the end of the day it wasn't right you yeah know, like, what they did was awful the disconnect between curtis's ruling and tajima peña's portrayal of the same events and nomas bebes could be due to changes in our notion to what consent means as dr karen benker the only physician to testify against the hospital explained the notion of voluntary informed consent barely existed during the early 70s the National Research Act, which required doctors to get voluntary informed consent from the subjects of their experience, experiments, wasn't passed until 1974. So why would you ask a woman to consider and sign off on an irreversible con- contraceptive procedure in the midst of her worst labor pains? Like that still doesn't make any sense. Um, I can barely think of, I can barely think of like when I have period cramps, like I can't okay. think straight, you know, like... <laughs> I don't want to deal with anything like I can't imagine being asked in a language that I don't understand yeah. to sign off on something as life altering as a hysterectomy. And the documentary suggests that the environment at County Hospital made coercion and deception very possible, even if it wasn't authorized. So I've had two babies, <laughs> um, both of them unmedicated, but my second one, I did it at a birth center and you have to, I mean, you do have to fill out some documents, right? It is medical stuff going mm-hmm. on. Um, but she gave them all to me prior and she said, have these all filled out before you go into labor. Mm-hmm. Because once you go into labor, you will not be in the right mind right. to be able to read correctly. I mean, let alone in, in something that's not even in the language that you're yeah. used to. But she said, and they were, the documents I had to fill out, they were simple you know, straightforward mm-hmm. documents. And she said, still have them done before right. you're here because you can't think of anything when you're in labor. You can't be presented anything and have like, just be able to rationalize things when you're in the middle of it. So I can't imagine what these women had to go through trying to read something in a yeah. language that they're not able to read, but something so big as a life altering medical decision. Right. Yeah. Um, According to the film, more than 1,000 babies were born there every month during the 1970s with no clear protocol for their delivery. Women labored on gurneys in the hallways, assigned to no particular doctor. One night, Benker said that she saw a medical resident hold a hypodermic needle filled with painkiller in front of an African-American woman in labor and say, you want this? You want the pain to go away? Well, sign this paper. And it was a sterilization consent form. So again, like you're withholding medicine Mm -hmm. and saying like you're not going to get this until you sign this so you Mm -hmm. better sign this according to banker um the patients in the county's obstetrics units were mostly low-income african-american and mexican-american women 
If the rates of sterilization were the highest among Latinas, that could have been a result of practical realities, not deliberate policy. I think it was easier to coerce or trick people who didn't speak English well or who didn't read English well or whose immigration status might have made them feel afraid. So I think it was, it was, you know, they knew what they were doing. Disturbed by the situation, another resident in county obstetrics unit, Dr. Bernard Rosenfeld, who was in the documentary and is the real MVP, he quietly copied the medical records for hundreds of sterilizations. Eventually, he passed this documentation along to Antonia Hernandez, and she and her colleagues forced or joined forces with the Chicana feminist organization Comisión Femenil, led by a legal secretary named Gloria Molina, to build a case on the foundations laid by the recently decided Roe versus Wade. If a woman had a right to terminate a pregnancy, they argued, she should also have a right to procreate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's how they went about this whole case. Like many of the plaintiffs that Hernandez and Molina persuaded to join Madrigal versus Quilligan, Consuelo Hermosillo initially wanted nothing to do with the case. Her sterilization at a county hospital had become a secret so painful that she and her husband never shared it with anyone. They did not even discuss it when they were alone. But after Hernandez showed her evidence that Rosenfeld had gathered, Hermosillo joined the suit without telling her husband in hopes that he would in hopes that it would protect other women, perhaps even her own two daughters. She told a babysitter she was going to work and rode a bus alone to the courthouse, angry, ashamed, and afraid. It's really sad because a lot of the women had similar stories. And, you know, they they were embarrassed. They were ashamed that they, that they couldn't have any more kids. Mm-hmm. You know, like some of them had one child and like were planning on having more and like just couldn't. Um, They interviewed some of the kids who were grown adults who had no idea Mm -hmm. that their moms had been a part of this, this court case. Yeah. And so they're watching it and they're like, I can't like, why didn't you ever tell me? And the mom is just sitting there like crying. Like I, I was in so much pain Yeah, that I had no idea how to talk about it. And I, it just was so many, it was raising so many issues between the husband and wife mm-hmm. too. So it was just really unfortunate because it really did affect the rest of their lives in, in so many ways. After Judge um, Curtis's ruling, Hermosillo's silence cemented. She never built friendships with the other plaintiffs. Some of them she learned were being beaten and castigated by their husbands for being sterilized. Her husband didn't do that, but Hermosillo had no one to confide in either. Though the hospital won... Madrigal changed state laws and strengthened strengthened the careers of several prominent Latino politicians. Because of this case, the California Department of Health revised its sterilization guidelines to include a 72-hour waiting period and issued a booklet on sterilization in Spanish. So good did come out of this. Mm -hmm. They didn't win the court case, but good did come out. The California state legislature unanimously repealed its sterilization law, which had legalized over 20,000 non-consensual procedure since 1909. Antonia Hernandez went on to become the president of the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. Molina later became the first Chicana elected to the Los Angeles City Council. Wow. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah, man. They were kind of like badasses. (laughs) Like She was a a super young, right out of law school, 27-year-old, had Mm -hmm. no like kind of idea what she was doing, but she took on the case and like fought really hard for the women. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Sociologist Elena Gutierrez argues that the sterilizations at County Hospital were a result of a perfect storm of pressures. Fears about a global population bomb mixing with prejudice against welfare use and illegitimacy accelerated by a rush of federal funding for family planning through the war on poverty. A quick aside on the population bomb. So the population bomb was a best-selling book written by Stanford University professor Paul Ehrlich, which predicted worldwide famine in the 1970s and 80s due to overpopulation as well as other major societal upheavals. He advocated for immediate action to limit population growth. The book has been criticized for its alarmist tone and in recent decades for its inaccurate prediction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many worry that his work could be used to justify genocide and imperial control, mm -hmm. as well as oppression of minorities and disadvantaged groups, or even a return to eugenics. Again, like crazy. Yeah. Um, but I remember reading about him in some of my sociology classes because... Mm -hmm. This whole idea of a population bomb during that time really did cause kind of like mass hysteria about how there was too many people being born. And so like, let's limit the ones we don't want. Yeah. But kind of indirect response to all of this mass hysteria that was going on. You all of a sudden have stuff like this going on in county hospitals yeah. where you can't even feel like you can go in and give birth without someone like your own body. I know. Ugh. Okay. Um, to sort of claim that we're part of the greater goal of sterilizing the Mexican population that immigrates to Los Angeles, I'm offended by that. That's not what we did. That's not what we discussed. And that's not what anybody in intimidated. And this was said by Dr. Michael Kreitzer, who was a defendant in the Madrigal and Quilligan case. Mm -hmm. uh, but Espino is not the only historian to look at Madrigal versus Quilligan and think of eugenics. Alexandra or Alexandra Mina Stern, a professor at the University of Michigan, has documented that by the 1940s, California accounted for 60% of sterilizations performed nationwide. Oops. Yeah, there's a big oopsies on California. Oh. The operations she found always disproportionately affected African Americans and foreign born residents, mm -hmm. including immigrants from Italy, Poland, Scandinavia, Russia, and Germany. Mexican Americans were long singled out for special attention. In Stern's book, Eugenic Nation, Madrigal versus Quilligan appears as a concluding link in California's protracted history of eugenics. The concept of we're being threatened by this overbreeding subpopulation seems to be a very powerful strain in our culture, Binker says. Two years before Hernandez filed Madrigal versus Quilligan in California, the Southern Poverty Law Center filed Ralph versus Weinberger in Washington, which I don't know if you'll remember this, but like when I read this, it kind of was like a ding, 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 because mm -hmm. I kind of remember reading about this. The case revolved around the sterilization of two African-American sisters, 14 and 12 years old, at a family planning clinic in Alabama, mm -hmm. revealing that more than 100,000 poor people were being sterilized every year under federally funded programs. Do you remember that? I don't think so. I kind of remember it, but I'm definitely going to look into it because it's pretty wild that 12 and 14 year olds. Oh, yeah. I don't want to talk about it, but there was one that I kind of remember, like one of the sisters, I think, was like mentally ill. If oh, this okay. is what if this is what it is mm -hmm. and it might not be, but it might be something else I'm thinking of. But I kind of remember like one person was like mentally ill. And so they were like, let's just keep them from reproducing like mm -hmm. let's hear a lesson but they were super young like yeah. you're 12 and 14 years old like you shouldn't There's have no to reason be, to yeah. be sterilized unless it's uh your choice you're even <laughs> then well i mean now you have to be like 
a certain age and have had a child yeah. or something like that. But I don't think any child at that age should be able to make that decision to be sterilized. If even if they did for some odd reason, I think the only thing I would understand is if it was like a life or death situation, uh, which doesn't sound like it was in this case. Yeah. And like, now that you bring that up, my sister had sent me an article again, like this, there's so much to go over when it comes to this stuff. But she and I were just talking one day and she was telling me about, um, like sterilizations and how if me as a woman decides I don't want to have any kids so I would rather go and get like my tubes tied Mm -hmm. um or sterilized or whatever um even though it's not like a law a lot of doctors will have you sign have you and your husband sign saying that they're okay with you being having your tubes tied Mm -hmm. but it's like why (laughs) It's my body. <laughs> like, why does my husband have to agree? Like, what if I'm not with them forever? What, yeah. like, even if I am with them forever, like, this is a 100% my choice. If he and I divorce over this, like, mm-hmm. that's none of your business. If I'm coming to you telling mm-hmm. you that this is what I want, like, I should be able to do it. But she was telling me that there's so much pushback on a woman deciding to do that without yeah. having other people okay her. There's also a lot of um, centers that won't do it if you're under like 25 or there's a certain age they won't do it if you're under and you have to have already had a child. It's crap. It's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy. Can I give you a random history thing that I learned in sociology class one time? (laughs) It was like sociology of medicine, I think. Um, But the Latin word, and I hope I don't mess this up, (laughs) the Latin word for um, the uterus is hyster and that's where hysteria came from isn't that and so originally it was just a mental illness for women Mm -hmm. because we we had we took that class together oh maybe we did take it so um basically a lot there's a time period where a lot of women were being put into mental institutions Mm -hmm. under hysteria because they thought that the uterus or the ovaries were causing them to have like mental issues. Yeah. And then it turns out that really just a lot of like husbands just wanted to like marry another woman mm-hmm. or like were mad at their wives. And so they would get them committed into these yes. mental institutions under hysteria. Yeah. And now we use the word hysteria <laughs> to talk about and, anything crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. According to the SPLC, countless others were forced to agree to be sterilized when doctors threatened to terminate their welfare benefits unless they consented to procedures so you can detect the same strain in the arguments once used to support proposition 187 in california which barred unauthorized immigrants for using some state services and in the justifications for denying mexican-american children birth certificates in texas so it runs through the movement to repeal the 14th amendment which would end birthright citizenship something that trump stated he would do with an executive order which he couldn't, you, he couldn't do it. But yeah, there's no he way thinks he could do through. anything he wants with an executive order. But it doesn't work that way. Um, so that's the case of Madrigal versus Quilligan. The women didn't win, you know, they didn't win their, their case. But a lot of things did come from it. So a bright spot, if you will, is that this case dramatically altered public consciousness and public policy on coerced sterilization. Despite their loss and the damages face of the litigation, the Madrigal 10 served as a catalyst for California's strengthened regulations for ensuring voluntary consent to sterilization. 
In addition, the Madrigal litigation also inspired the anti-sterilization abuse movement in California and helped to shape Chicana feminism in the 1970s. The case inspired Chicana feminist activism in ways that highlighted tensions between Main Street white feminists and women of color. The Chicana activists working on the Madrigal matter used multiple strategies to achieve their policy goals. They relied not only on the litigation of the case itself, but also lobbied for legislative reform and engaged in public education, including through widespread media attention. The activists brought the still-developing framework of reproductive justice to the forefront, incorporating concerns about discrimination along intersectional lines of gender, race, poverty, and immigration status, all issues which were at play in the Madrigal case. This case also sheds light on how the story of Madrigal versus Quilligan still resonates today. The threat of sterilization abuse continues to loom for vulnerable populations, particularly poor women and women of color, as seen in the recent ICE detention center allegations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple calls to action. Um, there's five things you can do to fight for immigrant families. And this I found um, on the ACLU website. Um, the first one was to learn more. Um, the Trump administration is using misinformation and outright lies to keep their inhumane policies in place. So you can learn more by reading the ACLU's fact-checking family separation piece that's found on their website. So just, again, like staying informed on what's actually going on. The second is to show up. Sign up for People Power to find out about actions you can take to fight family separation. Learn about the critical civil liberty issues. You can find events in your area um, by using the People Power map. So this is really just like finding ways to help locally, Mm -hmm. essentially, and showing up to help. Um, You can speak out. You can sign and share um, petitions, change.org, everything. Um, There is one petition on the ACLU site to the Security of Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, You can give your support. So there's a lot of local organizations working to provide legal help, food and shelter, like Sandy was saying, this woman who was just like let out um Mm -hmm. so providing food and shelter for people like her you can find your local refugee agency um and not all cities have one Mm -hmm. um but if you are located in an area that um is prevalent with refugees being resettled there or if you live near like a border town um there will be refugee agencies or even immigration agencies um that you can help with at that time And they're always looking for volunteers to, one, either take someone in for the night, two, help donate, um, to help them look for a place for a little bit while they're waiting for their case to be heard, um, or even for their legal defense. Um, or three, they're always looking for volunteers to help be like, a like a mentor Mm -hmm. type of thing, um, so that you can help them either get accustomed to the America, I guess, um, help with English things. Um, if, if they brought kids over, Mm -hmm. um, you can help them like tutor. Yeah with school and English and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of ways that you can help with the local immigration and refugee agencies. So that was kind of number five, volunteer your oh, time, sorry. which is good. No, it's good. Oh, the IRC so you, too is a big one that's located in a lot of areas. So you can also find opportunities by visiting immigrationjustice.us or the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project at nwirp.org. And a couple other things that you can do that I found after finding this list, which I thought were important, were 
call in your government representatives mm-hmm. call your local state or national representatives to let them know that you think that this is that this is a humanitarian issue um, key issues could include the protection of children's rights, establishing standards for humane treatment of children and families in ICE custody, and preventing the government from redirecting any additional emergency funds to other enforcement purposes. Okay. Um, you can donate goods. Um, government facilities that hold unaccompanied children are generally not allowed to accept donated goods, but there are private migrant shelters that need supplies, so consider sending books, clothing, stuffed animals, art projects to a local shelter near you. And then support migrant children and families in your communities, which I think we've touched on. But Mm -hmm. these families and children are being released and reunited with families or sponsors. They will be entering communities throughout the country and have undergone long journeys and find themselves in strange new environments. So just being there as like support. Um, Another thing, if you visit the International Rescue Committee website, um, they have a lot of ways that you can help out and donate. So there's a lot of um, things that you can learn from there as well. Okay. And then I have two more, but I think this is important. So bear with me. Um, Visit immigrants and detention centers in your area. So ICE has hundreds of detention centers all over the country that allow you to visit people. Hmm. So many areas have visitation programs so that you can volunteer to be a visitor and provide moral support. So that might not be the case this current time because of corona um but once all of this is lifted and we are able to do something like that like if you're looking to help i think like what better way than to lend your time to someone who's been in this detention center probably without any family or friends especially the children Mm -hmm. yeah i read some stories about the kids it's so Mm -hmm. sad um the last one is to volunteer with local service providers in your area to accompany immigrants to immigration court and ICE check-in appointments. So some organizations actually coordinate a p- accompaniment to court or ICE check-in appointments. So some need interpreters, others need people to help babysit the children while their parents are in interviews. Mm-hmm. So anything like that as well. I mean, that's kind of similar to what you do mm-hmm. for job for your work, right? right now yeah oh yeah but they're the foster kids yeah it's like a different different group but like it's similar you have people who volunteer Mm -hmm. to go with the kids and stuff so i think these are all great ways to kind of help and feel like you're oh absolutely they're huge help so today's amplified corner is near and dear to my heart i wanted to shed some light on the work that my wedding officiant who also happens to be a badass and the work she's doing Her name is Rachel Christensen and is the Assistant Director of Programs at USD. So for those of you who are not from San Diego, USD is the University of San Diego. And I would say that Rachel's passion lies in the borderlander movement. And so what is a borderlander? A borderlander is defined as someone who crosses a border and becomes a person of both sides. When you bridge the here and the there you inhabit a third a third space, the space of a borderlander. And so I think that this was kind of intriguing to me when I first learned about it because mm-hmm. I would say not in the sense that she is a borderlander um, and someone who like works in both places, right. but growing up, I was definitely back and forth from San Diego and Tijuana on a regular basis. I would say on a weekly basis, mm-hmm. we were going to TJ to visit family, to visit like, loved ones or whatever and so it was kind of weird and it reminds me so much of um the quote from selena the movie and the dad 
when when the dad tells her you know like you have to be more mexican than the mexicans and mm. more american than the americans to try and fit into both be places accepted. So that, that like space that you kind of reside in as someone who is so close to a border whether it's this one or in another country um it's so unique mm -hmm. and so it's really incredible that the work that she's doing is like shining a really like bright light on the importance of people who have these abilities of going back and forth. Yeah. Um, so Rachel's border, like I said, like ours is between San Diego and Tijuana where she spent most of her young adult life because of her constant back and forth between these two places. She began to believe and see that by living in between, we live more expansively knowing and loving people that grew up differently adds spice and flavor to life, challenging our beliefs about what is good and beautiful and what is best. The benefits of living in between borders include a richer life, but they are also insanely practical, making borderlanders better suited for jobs and problems for the future. Rachel sheds light on the many people she meets that live in between who are doing extraordinary work on both sides of our borders. You can find um, like small stories. So she does like small stories of these people. Um, she kind of does like a spotlight mm -hmm. on them. Um, and you can find those stories on her Instagram or her Facebook page. Um, her work is a great reminder that by working together rather than against one another, great things can happen. And in a time where immigration is at the forefront of many political and social conversations, her work with the Borderlander movements are great examples of what could be if we were all just more open to others. Yeah. Um, to learn more about the work that she's doing, uh, you can visit her website, livinginbetween.org, or her Facebook and Instagrams, which are both at Transfronterista. Um, yeah, that's what it is. It's at trans Transfronterista. So T R A N S F R O N T E R I S T A. And I'll give like a just really quick example, but one of the people that she spotlights is this woman by the name of Beryl. She wrote the like syllabus mm -hmm. or the course for city planning at San Diego State. Nice. Um, but one of the things that she is working on is trying to make um, the border a more like happy place, I guess you could say, because mm -hmm. for those of you who live close to San Diego or in San Diego or have ever visited San Diego or Tijuana, you'll know that whether you're entering or leaving San Diego, both sides of the border are these really like desolate, mm -hmm. scary looking places that don't actually represent what both of these cities are actually like. Yeah. And so her work is trying to find people on both sides who can help kind of boost the economies on both sides of these borders to create a more, um, reflective space um for both sides because it, we're such huge border cities yeah um and there's so much work that goes on on both sides and there's so many people from san diego who travel to tj and vice versa that um it it only seems right that these spaces that we enter and leave should reflect the cities that we're that we're visiting so that's just a quick example but she has so many on her instagram and her Facebook page. So if you're interested in learning more about what local San Diegans are doing, um, not just for San Diego, but also for Mexico, please, you know, visit her site. She also talks about people in like Europe who are doing amazing things. So mm -hmm. this is this borderland idea is not just something that's specific to us here in San Diego, but there's borders everywhere. Yeah. 
So, and crossing them and living between them is such an interesting, um, like way to just view the world that we live in today. Yeah. Um, so that's just a little bit about Rachel. She's incredible. Um, today was really long. (laughs) I'm out of breath. (laughs) My throat hurts a little, but I, I do think that all of this is super important. It's something that again like hits pretty close to home yeah for both of us and for a lot of the people that we know so it, mm-hmm. I think it's definitely something that needs to be covered it was and so much more that we can talk about at a later time yeah. so if you have anything like any stories that you have heard of or like that you personally have come across that you think are worth telling like send it in mm-hmm. on our Instagram unjustly podcast or email unjustly podcast at gmail <laughs> our facebook unjustly <laughs> podcast <laughs> yes the page i mean whatever way you want to send it in we you know obviously we've been doing special edition cases so you know bring it on <laughs> we're open to hearing all of it yeah so, so thank you um, thank you i hope you enjoyed that um, don't forget to subscribe rate and review both of them goodbye bye <laughs> I need to breathe. Because you need to yeah. slow down. <laughs> We're going to get some bad ratings for that. It, I'm sorry. It's it is true. It is what it is. If, <laughs> if you give us a bad rating, like, you shouldn't be listening. Bye. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. If you disagree with that. <laughs> Thanks, Flip, for the pizza. What his executive order has in reality. Mm. Sandy. What? You gave it to me. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what his executive order has in reality oh my god